2: I'm Bruce Gellerman. Walmart tries to help small farmers globally by buying more locally, but some small growers say it's a raw deal.
1: I think it's better for consumers to go directly to the farms and to develop a relationship with the farmers. I think if people go to Walmart, they're losing that farm-to-table connection, and I think that's a sad thing.
3: Also, a green slime gums up Lake Erie, worrying scientists and fishermen. The algae was actually probably the worst I have seen it. In the 27 years I've been doing this, by August it was horrendous. And reaping
4: a roof from fields of reeds. This is the largest private residence that has a thatch roof in New England. There's about 15 acres of reed on this roof.
2: These stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick with us.
0: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation. And Stonyfield Farm.
2: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Next month, thousands of diplomats, journalists, and environmentalists from around the world will fly to Cancun, Mexico, for another round of U.N. climate change negotiations. Ironically, the greenhouse gases from all that air travel is not one of the topics they'll be discussing The UN gave the responsibility for airplane emissions to the ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization. The group met recently in Montreal to discuss climate change emissions from planes, and after a decade-long impasse, they came up with an agreement. Some are calling it an historic agreement. Sarah Burt is an attorney with the environmental law firm Earth Justice, specializing in international transportation and climate change issues.
5: The problem is really that aviation is responsible for a significant and growing percentage of global emissions of greenhouse gases. It's about 2% of global emissions of CO2 equivalent, so all gases that are greenhouse gases. But when you take into account the fact that these emissions are at high altitude and the fact that aircraft also emit other non-greenhouse gases like Water vapor, which are aircraft contrails, the impact of those emissions at altitude has a magnifying effect. And so they're really responsible for about three to three and a half percent of global climate change.
2: And there's more people flying in more airplanes to more places.
5: That's right. Aviation is growing really very rapidly, uh, both domestic aviation and international aviation. In fact, international aviation is supposed to just about double over the next 25 to 30 years. So that's a significant increase in the number of planes that there are up in the skies.
2: But aren't airplanes supposedly becoming more fuel-efficient?
5: Well, they're not there yet. Their airlines will tell you that they are doing all they can, trying to maximize their fuel efficiency. In fact, there is a lot that still remains to be done. For example, we use in the United States a ground-based navigation system, um, which means that aircraft actually have to zigzag across the sky. So they have to lower their altitude to make contact with navigation systems on the ground and then go back to higher altitude again. Whereas if we had a satellite-based navigation system, they'd be able to fly at a more constant altitude, which would be much more efficient.
2: Well, now the International Civil Aviation Organization, this ICAO, says they've come up with a, with an agreement, if not a solution, right?
5: They have come up with an agreement. A lot of the details of that agreement are still to be worked out. But what has tentatively been agreed to is a cap of emissions from aviation at 2020 levels, and then also a 2% per year efficiency gain from 2020 until 2050.
2: So they've come up with this agreement. These seem like ambitious goals. I mean, you've got 2% Uh, more efficiency per year. But when all is said and done, is there more going to be said than done because it's 10 years out?
0: Well, the fact that an
5: agreement was reached is is significant. Um, It means that globally, the international community is on board with addressing emissions from aviation. The details of the agreement really are not so ambitious. It's true that they have agreed to a 2% efficiency gains per year, but when you compare that to the fact that uh, industry growth is projected to be at about 3 to 5% per year, you can see that those efficiency gains are far outstripped by By growth in the number of aircraft that are going to be out there. And also, it means carrying on business as usual for the next 10 years in terms of flying old planes and using inefficient engines. Really, the agreement reflects what the industry sees as being feasible and not too economically costly, rather than what the science and engineers say is not only possible, but necessary in order to have a significant impact on emissions reductions from aviation.
2: Virgin Atlantic has been pioneering the use of biofuels. And I was just reading that British Airways and Airbus, the airplane manufacturer, have been uh, developing a system to grow algae near airports in these vast vats. And they expect within four years to be flying their airplanes on algae, pond scum.
5: Yes, it's exciting, and uh, it sounds sort of somewhat out there using pond scum as a fuel. But algae-based fuels have a lot of promise for an alternative fuel source to fossil fuels that can be used in aviation and as fuels for other things as well, like cars and and ships. So it seems like a a promising technology.
2: At at the end of uh, November, I'm actually going to be flying to Mexico to go to the International UN Climate Conference and I'm wondering, um, should I feel guilty about flying there?
5: <laughs> oh, I'm not sure guilt is particularly useful, but I think you should certainly be aware of what the impact of those actions are. Not that we should never jump in a plane, but we should encourage measures to uh, reduce the impacts of, of those choices that we make.
2: Well, Ms. Burt, thank you very much. Thank you. Sarah Burt is an attorney with the law firm Earth Justice. By surface area, the Great Lakes comprise the largest body of freshwater in the world. But for the past few years, a green toxic algae has been blooming in one of the Great Lakes, Lake Erie. And this past summer, the green glop has been growing out of control, threatening wildlife, swimmers, and drinking water supplies. As Julie Grant reports from Ohio, scientists now say it's just one of a number of toxic algae threatening the lake.
6: It's a windy day along the Lake Erie shoreline in western Ohio. Captain Paul Pacholski doesn't want to battle the big waves, so he meets me inside the Lake Erie Research Center, which overlooks the water. Pacholski started a charter boat business with his father in the early 1980s. This has been one of their toughest years because the lake is filled with algae.
3: Algae was actually probably the worst I have seen it in the 27 years I've been doing this. Uh, it started developing probably in the middle of June where you normally don't see it till July, and by August it was horrendous.
6: Pacholsky says the pea green fluorescent slime made it look like his boat was moving through paint. His customers would ask, what's up with the water? He tried to brush the algae off as no big deal, but he wouldn't take them to his regular fishing spots. It was embarrassing.
3: You would not want to stop and take customers from another state, such as Wisconsin or Illinois, and stop them in that water and have them look at that green broth and and just know that our lake's starting to get sick.
6: Pucholski says the algae cost him and other charter boat captains more than 10% of their business this year, and he's worried about the future of fishing here. The shallow water makes the western basin the best nursery grounds in Lake Erie for walleye, perch, and whitefish. These fish are the backbone of the lake's billion-dollar fishing industry. The Ohio Department of Natural Resources says the number of walleye have dropped from 80 million down to 20 million over the past 5 years. Officials and some scientists suspect it's due to the algae. Tom Bridgman stands on the western Lake Erie shore. He's an environmental studies professor at the University of Toledo and has studied microcystis and lingbia algae since 2003
7: see this dark green, blackish, stringy-looking algae, and then you see a bright green, almost fluorescent green uh, scum of algae, and those are the two different
6: kinds. These toxic algae have encroached on Lake Erie for seven years now, but this year it hit where people noticed, along the shorelines in the tourist areas. Beaches were under swimming advisories most of the summer. Bridgman says most types of algae are good for the food chain in a lake, but this recent algae can be dangerous to people.
7: The problem with it is that it produces a toxin and that toxin can damage the liver if it's ingested and can cause skin rashes in some people.
6: We stand on a four foot-high pile of dried algae that runs along the beach. Bridgman says this variety is called Lingbia and it forms what looks like a thick mat of hair along the bottom of the lake. Lingbia consumes oxygen and could cause hypoxia, suffocating fish and other organisms on the bottom of the lake. In the past few years, Lingvia has piled on the shorelines as the weather cools in the fall.
7: And when the conditions are right and the algae breaks loose from the bottom, there'll be another layer of algae uh, deposited right where we're standing.
6: The algae feed on excess nutrients in the water, especially phosphorus, from agriculture and sewage. Bridgman remembers when Lake Erie was known as a dirty, dead lake in the 1970s. But in the wake of the Clean Water Act, water quality improved. Industrial pollution was largely cut off, and fish populations rebounded. There was a renaissance in tourism and fishing in the 80s and early 90s. But in the mid-1990s, algae blooms started appearing. The EPA focused on sewer systems. In many cities, such as Toledo and Detroit, the sewers can't handle big rain events, so they wind up dumping tons of raw sewage into Lake Erie. In recent years, the government has forced cities to improve their sewers— George Robinson is in charge of renovating Toledo's sewer system. The 15- to 20-year project has a half-billion-dollar price tag, and he says it's already preventing overflows at the city's water treatment plant.
8: Unfortunately,
2: we have had at least three years where everything that goes in gets treated before it's released. No bypasses whatsoever.
6: But even as Toledo and other cities have reduced the amount of raw waste dumped into Lake Erie, the toxic algae problem has grown worse. A study released this year by the Ohio Lake Erie Phosphorus Task Force largely blames farms.
7: There's a number of agricultural procedures that we think have changed over the last 20 years or so.
6: University of Toledo's Tom Bridgman is a member of the task force. He says farmers today apply manure and fertilizers in the fall and winter instead of just the spring. And that means more phosphorus ends up in the waterways, especially now with climate change.
7: When the ground is frozen, that tends to lock in the nutrients, but now we get big rainstorms in January, and so a lot of fertilizer that's applied can just wash off that.
6: Water from 6 million acres in Ohio, Indiana, and Michigan drains into western Lake Erie. So even if each farm loses a small amount of phosphorus, it can still add up to a lot in rivers and in the lake. Bridgman says there are efforts to work with farmers to reduce runoff of fertilizers and manure. Captain Paul Pacholsky hopes they can make a difference. As it is now, he says this could be the end of the line for the fishing business he started with his father and a way of life.
3: I would not feel safe letting my dog go in that water or my grandson. And that's a sorry state of events from water that we've all grown up with.
6: For Living on Earth, I'm Julie Grant in western Ohio.
2: Just ahead, don't be such a scientist. A new book teaches researchers how to communicate with the
8: public. The science community is continuing to communicate today, largely at the same pace that they did 20 or 30 years ago, while our society is turned into this rapid-action society of people tweeting and Twittering and, and YouTubing and everything else like that, and the profession is not keeping up with it.
2: Turning scientists into storytellers. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. In just a few minutes, a failed experiment and an accidental discovery that could revolutionize our understanding of genetics. But first, this note on emerging science from Amanda Martinez.
9: When a person has a stroke, every second counts. A blood clot stuck in a major artery is most often to blame. It prevents blood and oxygen from reaching the brain, and cells begin to starve and die. If doctors or EMTs can't loosen the clot quickly, brain damage can become permanent. At the moment, the only way to treat a stroke is to give the victim blood thinners that break the clot apart. But new science suggests that in the future, treatment could be as simple as getting a massage. Scientists at the University of California, Irvine recently showed that it's possible to prevent stroke damage in rats by stimulating a single whisker. The method was 100% effective, but had to be performed within two hours of blockage in the rat's artery to work. Researchers found that stimulating a lone whisker for four minutes activated the blood-deprived region of the rat's brain. The demand for blood became so great, it caused alternate arteries to retrieve blood pooled within the clogged artery and reroute it. Imagine a crowded theater full of people trying to escape. Instead of throwing themselves at a single locked door, they suddenly find four emergency exits. But of course, rats aren't humans, and we don't have sensitive whiskers. So the question remains as to whether the technique could work for us. The good news, researchers say, is that our lips and fingertips serve the same essential purpose as a rat's facial sensors. And given how dangerous and debilitating strokes can be, they believe a non-invasive, cheap, potential fix such as this might well be worth a shot. And that's this week's note on Emerging Science. I'm Amanda Martinez.
2: A failed laboratory experiment led to an accidental discovery that it's changing the way we understand genetics. It happened in Professor Michael Skinner's lab at Washington State University. Skinner was studying DNA, the genetic code of life, when he found by chance that environmental factors can change the way our genes work for generations far into the future without damaging the DNA. Professor Skinner is what's called an epigeneticist, and he joins me from Pullman, Washington, Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much. So, Professor, I looked it up. Epi is Greek for on or around, and genetics means source or origin. So, epigenetics around the source, basically, yeah?
10: Correct. And so, epigenetics would be things around DNA that regulate DNA activity, but are independent of DNA sequence, thus epigenetic.
2: So, something's gumming up the switch. It's not destroying the DNA.
10: Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. And so basically, sometimes it's the structure of the DNA, how tightly it's coiled or loosened up, that can actually change what genes are turned on and off. The thing that we study the most is a chemical modification of the DNA called methylation. A small chemical gets put on the DNA, and that can also regulate what genes are turned on and off. All of this can be influenced by the environment. has nothing to do with changing the DNA sequence.
2: So tell me about your experiment.
10: What did you do? So we were studying early embryonic development and the process of sex determination, whether you get a male or female. And so what we did is we exposed animals at the time of sex determination to a couple of environmental compounds that are commonly in the environment. One was a heavily used fungicide in agriculture, and one was a heavily used pesticide. And what we found was we did not change sex determination. So the experiment that we did for the purpose we did, it actually failed. However, we did see an interesting observation that the offspring, the embryos that were exposed, as they became adults, developed a high rate of disease. And then there was an accident in the lab, and actually one of the fellows bred those animals to make the next generation. So this would be the grandchildren of the mother that was exposed during gestation. And they also had the high level of disease. So we followed that up took it out four generations and had the same high level of disease onset. And it turns out the only way that that can actually happen is through an epigenetic type process.
2: Now, you know for a fact that you weren't damaging the DNA or the gene?
10: DNA sequence mutations occur at extremely low frequencies, usually less than 0.1%. And they also occur randomly. They don't recur at the same place at the same time. And so experiments would not be reproducible, and they would occur at very low frequencies. We see extremely high reproducible frequencies, so we knew this was probably not a genetic mutation event. In addition, we've actually done studies to show that we do not have an increase, apparently, in point mutations or chromosomal rearrangements, so the genetics does not appear to have a major effect.
2: Is there any uh, population evidence to suggest that historically that we've detected this happening?
10: So almost every region of the world has different disease frequencies. So, for example, in Japan, they have a high rate of stomach disease and a very low rate of prostate disease. In North America, we have a very low rate of stomach disease but a very high rate of prostate disease. If you take someone early in life from Japan and put them in the United States... They will develop, generally, the North American disease frequency and have prostate disease and low-level systemic disease. This suggests an environmental impact on disease. So there's a lot of epidemiology experiments like that which support that kind of concept.
2: So give me an example of something that my mom might have been exposed to that wouldn't have caused a mutation in me but would have affected my, my genetic expression, if you will.
10: First of all, the, the most logical one is nutrition. There's lots of nutritional elements that can regulate programming of the embryo and different tissues. In addition, in our society today, most people are exposed to a wide variety of environmental compounds, uh, whether it be the bisphenol and phthalates from the plastics, whether it be agricultural compounds like the fungicide that we use called vinclozolin. Most people are exposed to these types of compounds on a pretty routine basis. And so these compounds, through different mechanisms, do have the ability to alter the epigenetics as well. So we should really be looking at pregnant women. Pregnant women are definitely the most sensitive population for influencing the fetus's adult onset disease, absolutely. So yes, these early life events causing later life disease is something we need to think about more in terms of medicine. What you are is to a large degree determined what your mother did during pregnancy.
2: So are there a lot of epigeneticists around? i, I got to admit, i never heard of it
10: before. It is a growing field, and I think it does address a lot of our unanswered questions using genetics. For established scientists that have grown up and been trained in genetics, it's a difficult shift in their thinking to consider that there may be something else. And so I think it's going to be probably more the younger generation coming in that pushes the epigenetic area
2: there's a certain poetry to that, isn't there? I mean,
10: here you are, your studies of
2: epigenetics is affecting future generations of scientists.
10: I mean, anytime you're in a paradigm shift, there's always some opposition and pushback, and there's definitely, it takes time for that to integrate into the mainstream sort of science.
2: Well, Professor Skinner, thank you very much. I really appreciate it.
10: Thank you very much. Michael
2: Skinner is an epigeneticist at Washington State University. Now, Professor Skinner is pretty good, as scientists go, at explaining a complex subject to the average person. We spend a lot of time at Living on Earth trying to find researchers who can talk the talk to a lay audience. And frankly, it can be tough. Translating something as difficult as, say, climate change into an easily understood issue takes a special knack that Randy Olson says scientists need to learn. Olson, a marine biologist turned Hollywood filmmaker, has a new book explaining how. It's called Don't Be Such a Scientist. Randy Olson recently spoke with Living on Earth's Jeff Young.
11: Well, let's start with this odd uh, resume of yours. How does one go from being a marine biologist to a Hollywood filmmaker?
8: Through the telling of stories. And these days, when I look back at the two careers, that seems to be the unifying theme. I think I was drawn into the world of science by getting to know a number of senior scientists who are incredible storytellers. And by the late 80s, I'd got to the point where I'd done a lot of the major field experiences that I wanted to have and found myself telling lots of stories of what I'd learned. And uh, the deeper I got into that, the more I started experimenting with the use of film and videos. And I finally realized in 1994, right about the time I got tenure as a professor in science, that I wanted to kind of branch off and go off in this different direction. So what does Hollywood have to teach science? The key point in terms of this element of storytelling is that it is the most powerful means of broad communication. And people have known that here for over 100 years in Hollywood. So they have really refined the process of how you put together a story into its most enjoyable elements and its most easily received elements. So an audience can sit there and actually not mind the information that you're trying to convey to them in the course of the story. They know how to do it. And there's so much that the science world can learn from them and will eventually. It's just a matter of when they ease up.
11: Well, tell me more. What are scientists doing wrong here?
8: They are so focused on just getting the facts, only the facts, and putting them all in there and getting all of the information in at all costs that it handicaps their ability to tell a good story. Number one. Number two, they just simply don't put a priority on making sure that they are telling a well-structured story. And number three, over the ages, there has developed this phobia about the word story. They have come to equate those words with dishonesty. And that's not the case. The challenge is to tell stories that are 100% accurate. That is exactly the message of my book.
11: Give me a couple of examples of what you hear scientists doing wrong and where they might benefit from looking to, of all places, Hollywood.
8: Well, for starters, they, as one of my screenwriter friends said, they bury the lead. Just as a silly little example that last spring, I ran a workshop where we had a bunch of scientists send us their videos they were making in their labs, and one group sent this video of deep-sea creatures, which they had 40 different deep-sea creatures, and in the middle of all these little clips, all of a sudden there was a photo of this long, thin eel-like fish, and then a shot of 12 men on the dock holding this thing up, and that photo of 12 men holding up a fish, it's the longest fish in the world ever been discovered, And yet the people putting the other video didn't think it was any different than the weird little sea cucumbers and slugs and stuff that they had in the other shots. And, you know, they were seeking my input. And I said, start your video with that. That turns people's heads. That's fascinating.
11: But just prioritizing and finding the the more interesting uh, nuggets, uh, that alone can't explain why science seems to be getting its head handed to it over and over, for example, in, in the climate debate. What's going wrong there?
8: There is this element of speed that is not built into the system, and the science community is continuing to communicate today, largely at the same pace that they did 20 or 30 years ago, while our society is turned into this rapid-action society of people tweeting and Twittering and, and YouTubing and everything else like that, and the profession is not keeping up with it. The science world, I mean, the clearest example of what happened as a consequence of that in the science world is what went on last November with the ClimateGate debacle, where somebody in the U.K. stole... 1500 or so emails from climate scientists and immediately set to work spinning what that material was about into a big story for the media. And as this all erupted, the science community just sat there in more or less in shock watching it.
11: Well, okay. so if a scientist caught up in that so-called climate gate episode, had read your book and was thinking about applying the lessons from Hollywood, what should scientists have done there in response?
8: They should have taken the initiative by, first off, telling the story in their own terms. And the story began with the fact that the law was broken. People broke in illegally to a computer and stole emails. Uh, I will say again, the number one priority is the telling of stories and the structuring of information. And it's the logical flow. It's the narrative Development And it's the ability to tell the story all the way from 10 pages down to one page, down to one paragraph, down to a single sentence. And, you know, that's the idea of high concept in Hollywood is the ability in a single sentence to tell a very complex story that springs to life and lights a fire in the mind of the person. You know, as I mentioned in the book, snakes on a plane. That's all it takes for you to see a scenario (laughs) that has urgency to it. And you can envision people dealing with that. Um, and so, that is- w-
11: what's what's the high concept for for climate change then? You, what's what's your elevator pitch?
8: <laughs> We're all gonna die.
11: <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> but you got no sequel. Truly, you know, uh, reading your book, I had a negative reaction, not so much to what you were saying, but to what it implied about us, the audience receiving the science information that we need some song and dance from scientists. Shouldn't it be enough? And doesn't it say something bad about us on the receiving end of this information that we can't just be happy with scientists doing science and telling us the science?
8: I think the ironic thing with storytelling is that once upon a time, it was the most powerful means of mass communication. And then in the 80s and the 90s, during the information explosion, there was an era where people were questioning, you know, is storytelling dead and over with? And I think it's now undergoing a rebirth where it's now in the middle of all this chaos. It is the beacon of clarity of the people that can get up there and tell us this information in a structured format in the form of a storytelling. It's unfortunate. You know, I wish we lived in a world where you didn't have to bother with communications, where you could open your mouth and speak the facts and they would be golden. But we're not in that world. We're in the United States of America.
11: Randy Olson, thanks very much.
8: You betcha. <laughs>
2: Randy Olson is author of Don't Be Such a Scientist. He spoke with Living on Earth's Jeff Young.
12: Every now and then, I feel as though I've woken up in a Rembrandt etching, a low-tangled thicket of pen strokes from which a landscape emerges. Commentator Verlin Klinkenborg. It's not so much that the sky has taken on the tint of 17th century drawing paper, or that the world has lost its color. It has more to do with the balance of time. I wake up and nature seems to have paused in expectation. There's a numb overcast overhead with little drift to it. Wood smoke slides down the roof and onto the road. The wild apples are waiting to fall. We are all inked in, caught in the moment. It's an appealing illusion. I imagine being the human in one of Rembrandt's landscapes, that small figure standing in front of what looks like a cross between a house and a haystack. He is resting from something. Perhaps he's even looking out from his garden at the artist working in the distance. It took no more ink to draw that figure than it would to write out a simple equation. And yet there's no mistaking his posture or the moment he's given himself to rest, though that moment has now lasted since 1645. That's how it felt this morning, as if time had simply stopped. A crow had paused in the pasture. I counted fifteen morning doves resting on a power line. The leaves that were going to fall had fallen, and the oaks were not about to relinquish theirs. The weather seemed to be waiting somewhere off to the west. A flight of birds stirred from the branches and then settled back almost immediately. I heard what sounded like a small dog barking in the distance and realized it was a flock of geese beyond the tree line. They never came into view. Before long, the breeze will stir and rain will begin to fall, The silent anticipation hidden in such a quiet morning will be forgotten. The cry of a red-tailed hawk will unsettle the morning doves, and one by one those wild apples will become windfall. And as the weather changes and the clock resumes its ticking, I'll have to free myself from the artist's ink before it dries completely, step outside, and walk over the hill toward the sound of those distant geese.
2: Roland Klinkenborg lives on a farm in upstate New York. He's an editorial writer for the New York Times. You can hear our program anytime on our website or get a download for your MP3 player. The address is LOE.org. That's LOE.org. There you'll also find pictures and more information about our stories. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Coming up, giant Walmart shrinks the distance from field to fork, and a Thatcher expands the use of field to rooftop. Stay tuned to Living on Earth.
0: Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment, and from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International.
2: It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Walmart is the largest retailer in the world. Last year, its U.S. revenues alone were a quarter of a trillion dollars, and half of that came from selling food. Now the big box seller is starting to think small. Walmart has announced a new strategic sustainability initiative to help small and medium sized farms not just survive, but thrive. Environmental groups, including World Wildlife Fund, Conservation International and Rainforest Alliance, are working with Walmart to design the company's program and monitor its progress. Michelle Harvey is a project manager at Environmental Defense Fund. EDF is one of the groups also working with Walmart. Ms. Harvey, welcome to LOE.
0: Thank you. Glad to be here.
2: So let's talk about this deal. Big deal, big company. What are they trying to do?
0: What they're going to do is expand to a greater number of locally grown farms. They're looking for opportunity to increase the number of farmers, the types of food that the farmers are growing, and um, to really increase the diversity of sources that they have for the food that they sell in their stores around the world.
2: So what is the specific goal in terms of the amount they're going to be sourcing uh, from small farmers?
0: In the U.S., they're looking to increase that number to about 9%. It essentially is to double the amount of produce that they're purchasing locally. In the United States, for instance, it's within a state's boundaries.
2: And it's not just the United States. This is a global initiative.
0: Walmart spent about 18 months really working with organizations like Environmental Defense Fund, but also with their sustainability teams in the countries where Walmart is located around the globe. And this effort really was looked at in a global perspective. So it will be happening in Brazil and Argentina, Japan and China, as well as in the U.S.
2: Different goals, different countries?
0: Same large goals, different implementation. For example, in Brazil, which is, is one of the uh, key areas where cattle raising has resulted in a lot of deforestation, there's a very targeted goal to only source beef in areas that can be certified as not causing harm to, uh, to the tropical forests down there.
2: How many farmers do you think they'll be able to pull into this program?
0: The goal over the next five years is to engage somewhere in the ballpark of a million or more farmers. So, Ms. Harvey, what's in this
2: for Walmart? What do they get out of it? Why bother with so many local farms and farmers?
0: Walmart stands to get several things out of it. First and foremost, they get fresher food, which usually sells better with their customers. They have more diverse supply which means if there's a freeze in one part of the country, they've still got a good opportunity to purchase a product without having to see the prices increase. It's also about traceability. You know where your food is coming from if there's a problem, as we've seen happen with E. coli over the last few years. It's much more quickly able to identify the source and to address it. So it's better food, and it's reduced risk.
2: Walmart is so enormous. This project will, will make them even larger to give them a larger share of the market. Could that drive down the prices that they pay their farmers even further?
0: The goal of the project is to make harvest of food more efficient, but Walmart has expressed a strong commitment to leaving more of the profit with the farmer, which means the people today who might help get the food from the farm to the store are more likely the area where Walmart is going to look to become more efficient. But what's
2: good for the consumer in terms of low prices and and Walmart in terms of, of market share might not necessarily be good for farmers.
0: That's the part that will be the most interesting in all of this. In the framing of the goal, the big question that was discussed was how do you help the farmer to get the prices he needs to be able to support his family or her family. A lot of the farmers that Walmart will be looking to work with are actually women. But how do you keep the farm family well-funded so that they stay in farming and still maintain a good price? I think what a good chance of what will happen is that more direct relationships will develop between farms and local stores. That's going to help to give more money to the farmer, but without so many middlemen, you may still actually see lower prices without it hurting the farms themselves.
2: So kind of win, win, win. Uh,
0: Well, there's going to be folks in that supply chain who are going to fall out a little bit. But I think for the planet, looking at the environmental impacts and then being able to help educate the farmer on how to farm in a better way, keeping the farm families economically healthy and then providing fresh food to the community could it has the potential to do a really a really positive thing for uh, for how we produce our food
2: of course this is a promise this is a project with a promise uh, who's going to hold their feet to the fire
0: one of the roles that ngo partners like edf play are to really make sure that that it's implemented well that The goals are really accomplishing what they say they're accomplishing, and and if they're not, to help figure out why not and what we can do, suggest that Walmart do differently. Our expectation is we will probably get about three years into this initiative, learn what's working and what isn't, and the goals will probably shift as they move forward, but we're optimistic that it's all going to be pointed in the right direction to benefit the communities and to benefit the planet.
2: Michelle Harvey is project manager with Environmental Defense Fund, helping Walmart with its new Global Ag Sustainability Program. Just
0: have one head of here to,
2: to but what about the smallest of the small farmers? Growers like these. Farmers who do a brisk business selling rainbow chard, organic kale, and heirloom tomatoes at the weekly market near our studios. I went shopping for opinions to find out if they think they'll benefit from the Walmart initiative. Uh, can I have uh, two pounds of your uh, Honeycrisp apples, please?
8: Yes, you may. You want me to pick them out or you want to pick them yourself? I'll get them. Thanks. Okay. Yeah, you're welcome. Here's a bag. be about six apples.
4: $15.
8: Here. I'm Dan Wadley, and I'm a grower for Kimball Fruit Farm in Pepple, Massachusetts. Walmart is
2: proposing uh, that they uh, greatly expand the amount of local produce and products that they buy from small farmers like yourself. you think that's a good idea? Would that be good for you guys?
8: We grow just what we can supply and sell at our farmer's market and at our farm stand. So for us, it really won't affect who we are or what we do. We're just the right size for what we do.
1: My name is Ellery Kimball. I run Blue Heron Organic Farm in Lincoln, Mass. Small farms don't make that much quantity, and it just must be hard for small farms to supply a store or a chain of stores as big as Walmart.
2: Philosophically, would it be a good idea? I mean, here you are one of the smallest farmers in the country and they're the biggest retailer in the world.
1: I think it's better for consumers to go directly to the farms and to develop a relationship with the farmers. Um, That way they know exactly what is going into their food and what is being used. So when people come to my farm, they know that we're not using pesticides or herbicides or fungicides. They know exactly what my farming practices are and they get to interact with the place and get a better connection with our food i think if people go to walmart they're losing that farm to table connection and i think that's a sad thing
2: my name is matt hansen from Hansen's farm in framingham we have a small about 80 acre farm so what do you think of the walmart deal uh it depends it
11: depends on how they treat us because they could really destroy us with wholesale prices for example the wholesale price on corn this year was 13 cents an ear and um you can't really make a living off
2: of $0.13 cents a year, no matter how much you sell. So if they can keep up with regular grocery store prices for wholesaling, that's fine. But if they can't, then I don't think it's a good idea. They're big. They can They're huge. They could totally destroy a small farm, a whole bunch of small farms. Excuse me for one second.
11: Hi. Thank you very much.
2: Thoughts about Walmart's new ag initiative from some small growers at the Davis Square Farmers Market in Somerville, Massachusetts. A gravel road leads to a glade in the forest here in Lincoln, Massachusetts, an affluent suburb just west of Boston. It's a storybook setting, light filtering through a widening break in the trees, blue sky, fluffy white clouds, and farm animals scurrying and squawking about.
4: One of the benefits of the job is that we've been getting fresh eggs whenever we come out and do an inspection or add a drawing.
2: Keith Malcolm Brown is principal owner of Period Architecture, He specializes in blending traditional styles with designs that fit modern desires. His latest commission calls for transforming this 1950s suburban ranch into an Irish country cottage, complete with thatched roof.
4: This is the largest private residence that has a thatched roof in New England. It looks like a place that The Hobbit could live in. Well, that's kind of a nice image. It's in a uh, uh, a setting and surrounded by woods. There are chickens and ducks and geese. And uh, we were looking for something that would kind of epitomize a comfortable place to live. The windows... Look like mushroom caps. Yes, uh, called eyebrow windows. They're kind of a traditional window on this kind of, of house. And because it's thatch, you can do curves quite easily. The challenge was learning about the material. There's about 15 acres of reed on this roof.
2: This is architect Keith Malcolm Brown's first thatch house. And working with the material is a steep learning curve thatch is a renewable resource and has great insulating properties, or R-value.
4: The thatch is a foot thick, so we're up to about R-80 at least, and in some sections of the the roof up to R-90, R-92. Literally uh, through the roof? It's an exceptionally high. I know of no other structure that would have this kind of R-value. And we raised the roof to 45 degrees from about 14 and a half degrees because you need that for the pitch of the thatch. It needs to shed water. There are no gutters on a thatched house, so it needs to push the water down and away from the house.
2: Workers toss bundles of imported Turkish water reed into the air. It's like building a field on top of a house. Grasses and reeds have been used as building materials for thousands of years, and thatched structures can be found on every continent except Antarctica. We have plenty of thatching material here in the United States. It's an invasive plant called Phragmites, but it's not cut commercially.
4: Where do you find somebody who
2: does thatching these
4: days? Uh, You go on the web like you do for everything else. And we found Colin McGee, thatching.com. Can I talk to you? I climbed the ladder, and betwixt
2: and between roof and ground, I found Master Thatcher Colin McGee. Well, I'm Bruce. Colin, nice to meet you. Sure-footed on the steep roof, Colin McGee holds well-worn tools of the thatching trade in hand, a curved metal knife and a flat wooden hammer.
13: That's called a leggit. That's what you put the reed on the roof with. So he just catches the ends of the reed. So it looks all cut, but actually it's dressed in the position. I've been uh, thatching since 1977 and thatching in America since 1991.
2: How did you become a
13: Thatcher? Uh, well, my parents are Scottish, so we used to do this Scottish tour every year. And Robert Burns' college was being thatched. And that just stuck in my head when I was about seven. And I, got, I also got asked to leave school at 16. And as a joke, I said, I want to be a Thatcher. And the next thing I knew, I got a list of Thatchers in the south of England. Wrote to several and got a job with one. So that'll... Teach me. So what's the benefits of this stuff? It's uh, aesthetically pleasing. It uh, lasts a long time. How long will this last? Uh, 50 years. It's a uh, great insulator. It's a natural product. It, yeah, it's very. It's great sound insulator. It's just nice living under a thatched roof. You've got a foot-thick, hollow reeds. It's incredible. It's like a giant jigsaw puzzle. Each reed bunch is a different shape, so you want different shaped and sized bundles for a particular part of the roof like in a valley you use big bushy topped stuff on a hip like here you want nice triangle tapered reed so if you get the right bundle for the right part of the roof it it's, makes it very easy
2: so what are the challenges for you for thatching i mean uh, here in the united states oh well
13: it's the, uh, the climate's a lot different so you've got to adjust your thatching techniques to suit the climate it's a lot more humid here so the roofs won't last as long if you use the same techniques. You leave the surface a bit open so it dries out quicker instead of putting it on super tight. But maybe the reed, you use the toughest, ugliest reed you can get instead of the finest, prettiest, which you'd use back home.
2: Is there a growing demand for this type of, of, of material or this building style? Well,
13: hopefully. You know, nobody's building subdivisions like they do in Holland and, and Germany to build whole Hundreds of houses with thatch roofs. Really? You today? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just classed as another, it's, it's not, nothing weird or, it's just another roofing material. How long will it take you to do this
2: roof? Finish, start the floor.
13: It's a two month job. And the next job is a pub up in uh, New Hampshire, Epping, so it's not too far away.
2: Master Roof Thatcher, Colin McGee. For photos of him, the thatched home, and architect Keith Malcolm Brown, head to our website, LOE.org. On the next Living on Earth, a group of Harvard undergrads design a battery that's a real kick.
1: So right now, uh, you need about 15 minutes of kicking the ball that allows us to use a single LED. It'll be lit for about three hours.
2: Using soccer to light up the world, a noble goal next time on Living on Earth. And also on our online sister's show, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony invites all, but has special appeal for young African-Americans. Join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. We leave you this week in a Scottish Glen. Nighttime, Inverness, Scotland. The air is brisk and already there's snow on the ground. October is the beginning of the rutting or mating season for these red deer stags. Richard Margosius recorded their roars against the background of a river. The audio can be found on the British Library National Sound Archive CD called Wild Britain. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Lee Smith, Ike Shreeskandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins, Sammy Sousa, and Emily Garin. Our interns are Nora Doyle-Burr and Hannah Lyles. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Alison Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwitt is our executive producer. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman.
3: Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy, productive life, information at gatesfoundation.org, and PAX World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making.